Good morning. We are returning today to the book of Hebrews, where we are in the middle of a passage of Scripture that we've been studying for some time now. And I'm pleased to tell you that beginning next week, we will be preparing for Easter. And so we'll be shifting gears away from Hebrews to study a different text from the Old Testament, looking at Jesus' teaching from the cross. And um, I'm excited about that. But with that said, I'd like to finish the book of Hebrews strong. Now, I tell you, the book of Hebrews is... um, I've called it my favorite book in the New Testament. It's filled with so much depth and truth about who Christ is. It gives us great insight into understanding to the ministry of the cross. More specifically, the ministry that is being taking place in the life of believers with Christ serving as priest. Not only as priest, but as king. And what is salvation but by faith? The book of Hebrews is exciting. It points to the supremacy of what God has done in fulfilling all things in the New Testament through the New Testament. But it's confusing. The book of Hebrews is a difficult read. More so than any other letter found in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is tough waters to tread through. Maybe that's why it's my favorite. Turns out, uh, whenever... I was first going to college, I wanted to be an English major because English was the only thing through high school that excited me or made me get excited or that I had to wrestle with, and it was fun for me. I thought that that's where my aptitude was because that's where my interest was. I was wrong. I'm a terrible English student. It turns out my natural aptitude was in arithmetic. I did better in my math classes, but I hated them. I thought they were boring because they came easily to me. Now, I know some of you are a little bit more frustrated by that, and you say, well, arithmetic is not my aptitude. It doesn't come easy to me, and that's why I didn't like it. I think the same is true about calling Hebrews my favorite book in the New Testament. It doesn't come easily to me. My understanding doesn't come easily to me, and that's actually what makes me more interested in it. It's exciting. I don't want to spend my life or even my Christian pilgrimage looking at just the teachings of the church that the author would call elementary, the things that come easily to me. I want to spend my life growing. I want to spend my life struggling with the parts of Scripture that make me question my own fundamental understanding of our Lord and our Savior, the ministry of the cross. Why was it all possible? I say that to you this morning by way of introduction to our text, because this is the exhortation that our author is giving us. Now I know over the past weeks we've spent time looking at this Melchizedek guy and what was taking place in Genesis and why it's necessary for Jesus Christ to come and serve in the priesthood of such an Old Testament anomaly rather than the Levitical priesthood that is established through the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But Christ is different. I say that, and the reason we've roundabout come through 
chapter 6, looking first at chapter 5, then at chapter 7, and the end of chapter 8, and then moving back to the middle of chapter 5 and coming back to 6, is because I want to end on this strong and high note. Everything that we've waded through, the difficult waters, the difficult parts of the Bible to understand, the things that require more Old Testament knowledge to have a comprehensive understanding of it, ends here in the exhortation to good Christians to grow in their faith, to enjoy the struggle. Let's look at our text this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I pray that you'd have your Bibles open and ready to read along with me. But first, let us pray that we might have understanding. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with humble hearts. God, realizing that we do not understand everything that there is to know about you. God, we do not come to you sorrowful about that fact, but we come to you thankful that you have given us such an enriching journey as we come to know you. God, that you have given us the ability not just to not know everything, but that you have called us to dwell with you, that we are your people encouraging one another to draw closer to you as we seek the understanding that we don't have. God, as we turn to your word, we're reminded of the words of the psalmist, imploring you not to withhold your truth from us. God, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning, that we might be able to behold the amazing truth that is found in your law. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. The Bible says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What makes Hebrews chapter 6 a a difficult passage, of course, is the warning that we looked at last week or two weeks ago, the warning against apostasy or Christians that would claim to be Christians, that they would receive a foretaste of the blessings of God, that they would even spend time around other Christians experiencing the ministry that comes from the church. Christians that would hear the word of God proclaimed that would even understand, at least from a historical perspective, the truth behind Jesus' death and resurrection. 
That these people who have heard and have even begun to understand what God says in their mind, but not laid it to their heart, may walk away. That those that make this decision have no hope. They can't even repent. We find, though, that the author is not writing to Christians to give them this difficult warning for the purpose of scaring them. He's writing to them. He begins in verse 9, recording that he speaks to them in this way, beloved, because he is sure of better things. He is sure of the things that belong to salvation, a salvation that carries with it certainty and assurance in all things that God has given to us. And in developing this thought, as he encourages his authors in verse 12 to not be sluggish, but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore to himself. Our encouragement as Christians is to be patient in our endurance. Patient in our endurance in this life. On this side of heaven, patient in our endurance as we struggle with the Bible and difficult texts. Patient that we would not give up and turn away, but rather that we would continue to push onward to seek understanding of the things of God. Patient in our endurance, even as the church experiences persecution in this world, as the church is marginalized and made less significant in informing the things of society and culture, a place that the church has historically held in our country. We should be patient in our endurance, seeking not to please the kingdom of men, but to please the kingdom of God that we have been called into, grafted into. This is all based on not being sluggish, but being imitators of those who through faith came before us. The example we find is Abraham, the first forerunner of the faith found in the Bible. Since God gave him a promise, and look at verse 15, Abraham patiently waited. He patiently waited to obtain this promise. This was no small feat for Abraham. Put this in the proper reminding sense. Abraham was an old man told by God that he was going to father a nation greater than the stars. That would number greater than the stars. That would number greater than the grains of sand found on the seashore. As an old man... Not only that, but his wife was an old woman. I've heard of old men fathering children. I've never heard of an old woman mothering children. In fact, even when we look at the accounts in Genesis, we're told that Sarah was barren. And God told them that he was going to father a nation greater than the stars. He waited with patience, and through patience, this promise came to fruition. Oh, but it wasn't easy, was it? Abraham first took his first son, Ishmael, by Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. His second son, Isaac, was the one that would come to him to fulfill this promise. And as a consequence of not waiting patiently, he had to send Ishmael away. But he has Isaac, 
This in itself is amazing and stupendous and overwhelming to see God fulfilling His promise through the patience of Abraham. But it goes even a step further because we know that God told Abraham to take his son up to the mountain where he would make a sacrifice to the Lord. And Abraham went, saying to himself that the Lord would provide. Now, was he ready to sacrifice his son? He absolutely was. He laid him on top of the stack of sticks. He was ready to sacrifice him before the Lord. Now imagine the patient endurance necessary for Abraham's faith here. He already wavered in trying to achieve fatherhood through his own means. He patiently endured and God provided and gave him a son. And now he's about to be gone of a son. His patient endurance relied upon God in a way that has become a model for faith carrying all the way through the Bible. Abraham's faith is continually, repeatedly referred to as the model of faith, not just in the Old Testament, but for Christians today. He patiently endures obedience to God. And he does so based on the unchangeable character of God. God gave him a promise. This is why he can trust him if you look in verse 13. Because God gave him a promise. And this is amazing. What we find is that a person's promise is only as good as the person offering it to us. Isn't that true? How many times have you been by, told by someone, well, I promise I want to change whatever or do something differently, than you say, well, I've heard that before. That promise doesn't carry much weight, does it? How many times have you heard over and over again that somebody's going to do something, and depending on the character, character of that person, it doesn't mean much to you? Well, a person who swears their word is only as good as themselves But even in that case, in the Old Testament times, in the ancient cultures, a person could swear upon somebody else. This is where we get the idea of swearing upon my mother's grave. I swear upon my own mother's character. And in these days, who higher could a person swear to than the all-knowing, almighty, magnificent, mighty king, ruler of the universe, creator of all things, the one God? Well, who would that God swear to? There is no one higher than his own personal word, so he would swear to himself. We should think already that a promise that comes from God, that God says that he's going to do, should be so certain in our minds that there would be no wavering. Beloved ones, this is the problem that all of humanity faces. We're stricken with doubt. We're stricken with fear. We're stricken with worry. Even looking at the promises of an almighty, immutable, that is, unchanging God, we look at this and we can say, but is it really so? In Abraham's position, that he would look at it and he would say, is it really so that God's going to give me a child? I'm an old man. Is it really so that I will father an entire nation? I'm a sojourner. Today we look at it and we say, is it really so that God would promise me eternity in heaven? 
Is it really so that God would tell me of the days that I will walk with Him in green pastures? That I will see a heavenly city descending from the clouds like that of no other, where there is no conflict or interpersonal strife, where people are able to have relationships of harmony with one another because they're united by a human nature that is no longer corrupted by sin, but now the full magnitude of what is promised all the way back in Genesis that man were created in God's image is in fruition as we serve and take dominion over this world, as we take dominion over the things that God has created as a blessing for us. Not only that, but that we would have relationships with one another and an unmarred relationship with God. Such perfect pictures of glory. We look at them and we say, can it really be that good? I don't know about you, but just being honest, I I think that is the case. When I consider how great the Bible describes heaven, I wonder, is it possible that it can really be that great? Can I really get out of my own way? God, can I really know you? Can I really love you in such a way as to experience that blessing? Oh, why is it possible for me to doubt in this way? Why is it possible for us to doubt in this way? Because we live in a world that contradicts everything that the Bible tells us heaven will look like. We live in a world where even well-meaning, well-intentioned people can't seem to get along. People with differences of opinions can't discuss things. Families fall apart. We live in a world where it seems like human nature is always in the way. Is it possible, God, that you could rescue this world and keep humans on it? I mean, that may sound very pessimistic to you, but the reality is that's where my brain goes. As I scroll through my news feeds, as I open up my newspaper, why can I be certain Why can I patiently endure all of these things? It is because of the unchangeable character of God's purpose. Verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. I want you to check this out. God cares about our doubts and insecurities. How do I know? Because His promise was enough. His promise was enough to grant us certainty and comfort with all of these things when He swore by Himself to Abraham. But He wants to guarantee and give us more confidence in this than we could possibly have than just a promise. He gives us an oath. The equivalent of a contract. He swears by an oath, something that is indisputable, that these two unchanging things, a promise based on the immutable character of God, and now an oath that God has a purpose in us. It affirms God's own character. We have these two things, first a promise, then an oath, but we also have two parts of God's character referenced here. Back in verse 10, we find that God is not unjust. Verse 10 of this chapter says, God is not unjust as to forget your work as you are working now. Just as He is not unjust to forget something, He's not unjust to say something and then turn away from it. He wouldn't swear and make a promise and make an oath and not keep it. 
But beyond that, even in verse 18, we find even if he could do that, if it was somehow just, because I might not understand justice in the sense that God does, I find that in which it is impossible for God to lie. So if he's made a promise, he can't lie to me. I stack this on top of all of the promises that God has ever given to his people. Promises to be with them, to not forsake them, promises to watch over them, promises to provide for them, promises to meet their needs, promises to save them, to ransom them, to rescue them, to pay the penalties of their sin on their behalf if they are faithful. Such promises are things that I have certainty in because of the certainty that comes with God's promise. In this, I have patient endurance to live all things throughout this world. Let me move on to my second point. Sound good? Not only do we have patient endurance in the certainty of God's promise, but He gives us these things that we would have a strong encouragement. Or the King James calls it a strong consolation. A strong encouragement or a strong consolation. Look at verse 18. Right in the middle it begins, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now God's not satisfied with just giving us an encouragement or a consolation. He wants to give us a strong encouragement. Charles Spurgeon listed four characteristics of a strong consolation. He said that a strong consolation does not depend upon bodily health. A strong consolation does not depend upon the excitement of public services and Christian fellowship. A strong consolation can't be shaken by human reasoning. Wait just a second, what? Strong consolation is stronger even than our guilty consciences. What is the strong encouragement that God is giving us that surpasses the four things that Spurgeon would list? He he defines it by the negative, and looking at that, I, I have to ask and wonder myself in verse 18, what is the strong encouragement that God is giving us? What is He giving us to hold on to but the very hope of His promises? The security of His promises. So I wonder, these things that cause me to waver, these things that infiltrate my thoughts and and cause me to doubt even, these things that would cause me to question God's very goodness, well, what are they? They're the suffering that I experience when my body fails me. They're the suffering that we experience as we watch decay in this world take form in the lives of those that we love. How is it possible, God, that you would redeem me when this is the end that I see? It does not depend on the excitement of public services and Christian fellowship. So often, uh, we, we see today, even, those that would place their faith or make a profession of faith based on a charged up emotional atmosphere. Even Christians, I believe, are able to mistake what is genuine worship of God for the excitement of experiencing goosebumps 
True worship is not always hinged to an experience or some sensational experience. Certainly, that is a part of it. I've experienced it myself when I've been overcome with the love of God or overcome with understanding His promises as they're directed towards me or even realizing that what He says is a promise. But it's not constant. Sometimes in genuine, authentic, and the most sincere worship, it is a struggle where I am beating my head against God's own word, asking him, Thou, what does this mean? When I'm making reference to other Christians and I'm studying across others and I'm asking them, how does this speak to you? Or even when I have to admit to myself, is there sin inside of me that's preventing me from understanding this? My strong encouragement may come because I do not see excitement in the public service of a Christian. Rather than being steadfast in these promises and patiently enduring, I'm discouraged by what I think that I should see. My strong encouragement, rather, would come from God and His own Word, disregarding the things that are discouraging me and placing them upon God and God alone and drawing closer to Him. A strong consolation can't be shaken by human reasoning. Now, this one has just had tumultuous effects for every theologian throughout history. It turns out theologians think that they're pretty smart. And they get in their own way. Wouldn't it even be the case that one of the concepts of understanding for the image of God that God has placed inside of us has been human's ability to be rational or have reasoning? Now, this makes sense. If you're a real nerdy, smart theologian, you think highly of yourself, of course, this is what God does to distinguish you. I disagree with that contention, but we'll save that for another time. My hope looks beyond even my own rationale. It goes beyond what even I comprehend and understand. Because in the face of not understanding... I can still be sure of God's promises. It goes beyond even a guilty conscience. Oh, this is the trouble that we face when we read the rest of Hebrews chapter 6. In fact, I think when we read it and we have a guilty conscience because we deceive ourselves into falling backwards into sin or even embracing or being complacent or even being apathetic towards the things of God. We read it and we are overcome and stricken with the guilt that we experience in running away from God. We read in the Old Testament all of the accounts of the people of Israel who would quickly turn away from a God that provides for them, and we wonder how is it possible that they do it until we realize that we ourselves are them. That even Christians today experiencing the glories and blessings of the church are capable of becoming sluggish. Isn't this the encouragement that we found already in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11? That our ears have become sluggish. That the reason it's difficult for us to talk about these things is because we've become dull of hearing. That's why in Hebrews 6, verse 12, we're told so that we may not be sluggish, but may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises.
What a great promise we have to overcome even a guilty conscience in the certainty, the strong consolation, the strong encouragement that comes from God. I'm reminded of a song that <clears throat> begins with an A, and so every time I get in my car, it's the first song that plays, and so it's begun to drive me crazy. I cannot stand the song as soon as it comes on. But the lyrics remind me of the certainty of this encouragement that we have from God. Acres of Hope by Shane and Shane. He will allure her. He will pursue her and call her out to the wilderness with flowers in his hand. She is responding, beat up and hurting, deserving death, but offerings of life are found instead. She will sing, she will sing, O oh, to you. She will sing as in the days of her youth, as you lead her away to the valleys low, to acres of hope, acres of hope. Here in the valley, walk close beside me. Don't look back, for love is growing vineyards. Up ahead, you have called me master. And though you're, walking, though you're in the dark here, call me friend, and call me lover, and marry me for good. How the story ends is love and tenderness in him. Not safe, but worth it so in the valleys up ahead or the ones we will live and sing together. We'll sing together in acres of hope. This picture of the church and the bride of Christ walking alongside him in the darkness. All these things that would cause doubt, that would make the church have need to be enduring patiently, taking hold of the strong encouragement that God has given to us, sets before us the very certainty of God's promises. But who is this strong encouragement for? If we look in verse 18, it doesn't begin with that God has given us this strong encouragement, but it says that we who have fled for refuge might have this strong encouragement. Now, loved ones, this is important because if you're interested at all in the certainty of promises that overcome your own rationality, that overcome your own guilty conscience, that overcome even excitement and are greater than these things, that make our bodily health seem small and trivial in contrast with the glories of God's promises, then we should ask, how can I have this strong encouragement? The answer is found in the text when it says that it is for those who have fled for refuge. The strong encouragement is those who are fleeing away from the things of this world and running towards God. This phrase, refuge, is not there by mistake, but I would believe it is referencing the cities of refuge that God established in the Old Testament. You'll remember as the people of Israel were coming into the promised land, he instructed them to create cities of refuge so that the manslayer may flee there and be safe from their crime. Now, this wasn't for people who actually had crimes that they could run there and just live there freely. This is for people who, by accident or happenstance, took the, spilled the blood of another person. According to the law, if somebody were to kill, uh, kill another person even by mistake, their life was the due payment for retribution. 
There would be a kinsman redeemer who would have charge and have the ability to go and take the life of a person. Who even if it was an accident while they were chopping trees down, if the axe handle flew off and knocked somebody in the head, they could take their life. So, God commanded Israel to as they came into the city and they divided the nation into the tribes according to the size and number of the tribes of Israel at that time that each one were to have cities of refuge. There were 12 of them. What does refuge mean for us? Does it mean that we have a place to flee whenever our conscience takes hold of us? Or rather, do we see even in the creation of these cities the very picture of Christ who becomes the high priest who serves in the, behind the veil on our behalf? Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach to the person in need. The place of refuge would be of no use or no purpose or no help to someone if they were difficult to go to. Neither is Christ. He's not far off or far away, but He is near to those who call upon Him. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all. These places that were established in the New Testament did not just exist for the people of Israel, but they existed even for the Gentiles among them. So too, Christ is open to all. There are none who will be turned away from Him in their time of need. Both Jesus and these cities of refuge were places to live. Now this is important. Understand that a person who became a manslayer by mistake, if they fled to a city of refuge, if they went there, that they were not permitted to leave. They had to live there. This was the city in which they were safe. The same is true of the Christian. When we come to Christ, when we come to Him because He is near, we are not permitted to leave and wander off so that we can come back and visit whenever we would like. He is our place of rest and comfort. These cities of refuge are the only alternative for the one who had need. This is the same of Christ. Because in His refuge, and without His refuge rather, our destruction is certain. Both Jesus and these cities of refuge provide protection within their boundaries. To go outside and provide refuge would mean death. Both Jesus and these cities of refuge provide full freedom with the death of the high priest. However, there is one crucial difference between Jesus and the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were only there to help those who were innocent. In the sense that the mistake that caused them to, their blood to be a rightful payment for a kinsman redeemer, it had to have been an accident. If they were found having a disagreement with the person that died, or if there was any sort of contention between them, a city of refuge was not available for them because they were not a manslayer, they were a murderer. Crucial distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge is that Jesus does not come to save the innocent, but He comes to save the guilty. His promise is over all. 
we find that in not only that we are taking refuge in him, staying among him, but that we go forward looking at this anchor. We hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This is what the Christian promise is. It is an anchor. If you read in your bulletin, I think what I wrote in there was, I cannot believe that at some point in history, there was some guy that walked up to an ocean and said, I think I'm going to get some wood, and I want to get inside of it, and I want to go out in all of those waves. That's a real thought that crossed through somebody's brain before it had ever been done before. That's crazy. Even more far off than that, somebody looked up to the sky and said, I'm going to take some really lightweight material and go really, really fast and see if I can fly. These are real thoughts that people have had. I wonder how long it took after the Wright brothers developed a plane and after they became commercial, how long did it take before people started bringing parachutes with them? How many sailors went off to sea before they said, hey, sometimes the waves get bigger than I realized and it kind of moves the ship instead of the ship moving in the water? I'm going to take a big rock and a rope and I'm going to use that to hang on. I think for many Christians, our faith is a similar picture. We take off in faith, pursuing Christ, coming and wanting to know Him, wanting to grow in Him. And we come across passages in the Bible that challenge us and life circumstances that even challenge our faith. And we look around and we say, I don't know what I got myself into. How long did it take before Christians had this hope? It wasn't something that we carried along with us. Rather, it is something given to us by the promises of God that we would take fast of what is an anchor for the soul. A soul that is in dire distress and in need that we would tie it and that we would anchor our own lives to it so that in the turmoil of waves coming crashing against us, we would have something to hold on to. We would have something to give us peace and comfort. Our hope that extends beyond this strong encouragement, but that it gives us peace in uncertain times, equipping us to take this patient endurance one step further. But what is different about our hope? Well, I don't think that it keeps us secure and in the same place, but rather that it encourages us to move forward. If you look at the end of our passage, I promise this is where we'll end this morning. Our hope goes to the curtain that is behind the veil. Do you see that in verse 19? We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Well, how did it get there? Isn't the inner place of the curtain closed off? Where, verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's essential that we understand that Christ became high priest because our hope is connected to that very fact. Watch this where a ship's anchor descends into the ocean and it can no longer be seen, where it clings to the ground underneath it, making the ship stable. Our hope goes up. Our rope ascends into heaven, into the very holy place that Christ has entered on our behalf. 
Now, it makes that reference in our passage to the veil being torn. And this is significant. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention just how incredible this was. The very fact that the temple built by God and by His instructions included this holy place that could only be entered once a year by the high priest to make atonement for the unknown sins of the people was shrouded by a at least four inch, about the size of a man's palm, curtain that separated it from the rest of the holy place. It held inside of it the Ark of the Covenant and all of the things, the promises of God. It was the mercy seat of God where the blood would be spilt to make payment for the sins of the people of Israel. On the day that Christ was crucified, the scripture records not only the clouds that would become dark, not only the earthquake that would take place, but that this thick veil would be torn from top to bottom. No longer was this a closed-off passage that required a high priest to enter into, but it was a place opened up by the forerunner of Christ that we would be able to enter alongside with Him. And what's remarkable about this is that the temple on earth is a picture of the temple that is in heaven. This is the reason why the instructions for it were so important. That Christ, when He ascends, He still goes to this holy place. And His blood is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of those that would come to know Him. And He is in heaven now making these sacrifices for us. But His priesthood is different. Not like that, like the Levitical priesthood, where they would be a representative of the people. Like a lawyer or like an advocate that would come and make a case for the person. But He goes as a brother. What do I mean by that? He goes as a forerunner on our behalf. Here's what's different about the Christian anchor, the hope that we have, than the anchor that would secure a ship in the ocean. An anchor in the ocean will hold a ship in one place, but the anchor of hope in the Christian should cause us to move. See that Christ is a forerunner. If there is a forerunner, there must be an afterrunner. The priesthood of believers is something more than something that we like to talk about so that we can come to Christ as individuals, growing in our fraternity and relationship with Him. We must pursue after Him even through the difficult things that we read in the Bible. Pursue after Him even with the difficult doctrines of the church when they are faced up against a world that is opposing them. We must pursue after them even when we are discouraged by a lack of zeal and passion in worship services. We must pursue after them so that our brothers and sisters in Christ may know this anchor of our hope that is greater than all things, that is more sure than all things that we would patiently endure, have a strong encouragement, continually fleeing for refuge, so that one day we can finally rest. One day we can finally rest in the refuge that He has provided for us. Father in heaven, I thank You for Your Word. God, I ask that You would help us to flee fleeing for refuge that we might know you, resting securely in the promises that you have given us, following the model and being imitators of those who have been patient before us. 
God, we realize this morning as we stand to sing glories to your name that we are not standing on the promises that have been secured by our own strength. We're not standing on the promises that have been secured of this church. We're standing on the promises of generations of people that have come to know you. Those that have brought your kingdom and ushered it into this world who have given us the church that have established your truth for us. God, do not let us become sluggish in our hearing. Do not let us become sluggish in our doing. Do not let us be sluggish in our praise. But God, let us stand with a zeal that is established by the anchor of hope that we have in your promises. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we prepare to...